Hey everyone, quick announcement. If you want to support this podcast, check out my website, useconpodcast.com. There you'll find a link to my Patreon as well as some other interesting things, like the list of books and resources I use in putting each show together. Some other ways you can support this project are by subscribing to the show, writing reviews, or sharing the podcast on social media. One last thing, make sure you follow at useconpodcast on Twitter. Alright, now for the history of US economics. Before diving into the tariff history of the United States, we left off around the turn of the century, the signing of the Constitution, and the end of the 1700s. At the start of the 1800s, the U.S. economy was comparatively vibrant relative to other global powers. The bounce back of foreign trade by the 1790s led to a stimulus for the agricultural commodities coming from the South, as well as for the industries of financing, insuring, and the warehousing of goods up in the North. Exports more than quintupled between 1790 and 1807, with goods almost entirely channeling through four mostly northern port cities, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, and Baltimore. Demand for American goods was augmented by the French Revolutionary War and then the Napoleonic Wars, which occurred between 1792 and 1815. Supporting the growth of southern agricultural exports, American ship construction recovered from its post-war doldrums and went on a tear, while other industries supporting ship construction like lumber and ironworking rose in step. Meanwhile, American-grown wheat and flour were the cash crops of mid-Atlantic plantations. Also helping to stimulate the U.S. economy were sugar, coffee, pepper, and cocoa, which were grown in the Caribbean, shipped up to the U.S., and then re-exported to Europe. But we can't forget about the most critical commodity of the time cotton. Having more or less dethroned tobacco as the southern cash crop, cotton cultivation became a craze in the South in the 1790s and for much of the 1800s. Two factors led to the rise of cotton. The first was the breakup of a French monopoly on tobacco production in 1791 during the French Revolution, leading to an influx of tobacco growers who flooded the market with the French crop. This lowered the price of tobacco and left southern growers in search of a different cash crop. The second contributor to the rise of King Cotton was the invention of Eli Whitney's cotton gin in 1793. The cotton gin, short for cotton engine, was a device which mechanically separated the cotton seeds from the fibers, an extremely laborious process which previously had to be done by hand. Before the cotton gin, the amount of labor and time needed to process cotton made the growth of cotton slow and uneconomical. By 1793, however, the limiting agent was no longer the processing time, it became manpower and the shortage of arable land, the very forces which led to the rise of southwestward expansion, the expulsion of the Indians, and of course, the rise of slavery. The transition from tobacco to cotton took place around 1790, and brought with it a rise in merchant shipping, land values, and a growth in transportation infrastructure. The rise of cotton coincided with the Louisiana Purchase, which occurred in 1803 after President Thomas Jefferson bought 828,000 acres of land from Napoleon Bonaparte for $15 million, which by the way is only $300 million in 2016 dollars. The purchase nearly doubled the nation's territory overnight and helped to alleviate the final bottleneck in cotton production, that of a shortage of arable land. With the cotton gin and slavery widely utilized across the southern states, the Louisiana Purchase solved the final bottleneck and allowed massive cotton production to truly begin, an event which completely shaped the trajectory of the southern economy. After the federal government acquired the Louisiana Purchase territory from France, southern farmers bought chunks of land to expand their cotton production. 
These purchases were increasingly fueled by credit, credit which now existed because of Hamilton's first bank of the U.S., which you might remember from episode 4. For its part, Hamilton's bank was successfully pumping credit into the economy, supporting investment and business activity, not just in the South, but across the entire country. It's against this backdrop of a fruitful economy and a growing nation that we resume our narrative and explore the three events that derailed the years of plenty. They were the Embargo of 1807, the War of 1812, and the Financial Panic of 1819. By 1803, the French Revolution had given way to the Napoleonic Wars between France and Britain. American businessmen and merchants seized the opportunity to sell goods to both sides of the conflict. This led to harassment of American shipping from the French and the British, both wary of goods being delivered to their opponents. France was the first to act on this tension, and in 1806, Napoleon issued the Berlin Decree, which was a blockade of Britain subjecting every American ship heading there to seizure and or confiscation. Two months later, Britain responded in kind with the Orders in Council of 1807. These decrees forbade all trade with the French and blockaded French ports. As a result of British and French commercial warfare, more than 900 American ships were seized between 1803 and 1807. To make matters worse, the British also exercised what they called impressment, or the forced conscription of captured American soldiers into the British Navy. American public opinion demanded a government response. But attempting to avert military action, President Jefferson responded with the Embargo Act of 1807, which suspended all trade with all foreign countries. The idea was to choke Britain and France from the critical American goods they desperately needed for their war efforts. Once the British and French realized how detrimental the loss of America was as a trading partner, Jefferson expected both countries to revoke their oppressive trade policies. In this, the Embargo Act utterly failed. Not only did the Embargo Act fail to exact a positive response from the Europeans, it caused a depression in the United States. Unemployment rose and domestic prices cratered. Ships sat unused and literally rotted in American ports, and the economies of the port cities, which completely depended on international trade, went silent. Add to that that other countries, like those in South America, with whom American merchants had developed trade relationships with for years, were forced to look elsewhere, to other countries to supply their goods. Ironically, South American countries turned to the Europeans, even the British and the French, who benefited from the increased trade. The upshot of the Embargo Act of 1807 is that it boosted domestic manufacturing. Think about the protectionist tariffs we talked about in the last episode. When tariffs are really high, they price foreign goods out of the American market. And when this happens, American companies no longer have to contend with foreign competition and can get a chance to develop. Well, an embargo accomplishes the same goal as an ultra-protectionist tariff by cutting foreign competition completely out of the U.S. market. So it's not a coincidence that around this period, businessmen like Samuel Slater and Francis Cabot Lowell pioneered American industries like textiles and cotton processing, domains previously monopolized by the British. Along the coast, the sudden economic disaster that was the Embargo Act caused the Jefferson administration to repeal the law. Fifteen months after its passage, the Embargo Act was replaced by the much gentler Non-Intercourse Act of 1809, which forbade trade only with the French and with the British. By 1810, the French repealed their laws against American trade, contingent upon America only resuming trade with the French and not the British. To this, America agreed. This asymmetry in trade invited British reprisals against American merchants. 
Though the War of 1812 is setting up to be largely about international economics, there was another factor that caused the war to start. Along the western frontier, the massive influx of territory through the Louisiana Purchase left American settlers in constant conflict with the Native Americans and the British still residing in the northern region of Ontario. The natives in the region partnered with the British in hopes of halting American northwestward expansion. Therefore, American settlers figured the most effective way of ousting the natives was to eliminate their powerful ally, the British. At this point, Americans along the western frontier agitated for war. Trade was resumed with the rest of the world, excluding Britain, who continued to accost American merchants, and the foundations of the War of 1812 were laid. In late 1811, Indiana Governor William Harrison led soldiers into the Battle of Tippecanoe. Harrison won the skirmish, causing the Shawnee Indians and other natives in the region to cement an alliance with the British, and the War of 1812 was on. You might remember from previous episodes, when it comes to wartime finance, governments basically have three avenues to which they can turn. One is taxation, two is printing money, and three is issuing debt. Regarding raising taxes, Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin managed to pass some new and unpopular taxes, but they proved futile at funding the massively expensive War of 1812. Tariffs, another form of internal revenue, also failed to generate any cash, since, just like during the Revolution, the British immediately blockaded American port cities once the war broke out, slowing international trade to a trickle. Regarding money printing, the Republicans in power advocated for limited government, especially in the banking sphere, and were loath to print money because of it. To wield the printing press meant that Madison would have to eat his words after harshly criticizing Hamilton's central bank as unconstitutional. The bank, of course, had a congressional monopoly on money printing, but you'll remember, had just been shut down in 1811, one year before the war broke out. You might remember from episode 2 that Congress had financed the Revolutionary War by printing money, but this time they couldn't publicly do that. So instead, they turned to a much more nuanced and devious plan involving getting private banks to print the money for the government in exchange for mammoth quantities of government debt. Just to make sure we're on the same page when I say the government issued debt, all I mean is that it sold bonds. When the government sells bonds, the Treasury is saying to members of the public, like you and I, hey, if you give us a $1,000 loan, we, the Treasury, will make interest payments on that loan back to you, and eventually we'll give you the full $1,000 back in a big check. For investors, so long as the government looks like a creditworthy institution, that could be a pretty good deal. From the investor's perspective, he or she might say, so I give you $1,000 now, and you give me 50 bucks in six months, and then 1,050 bucks a year from now. So I make $100 over the next year on my $1,000? Hey, you know, sure, that sounds pretty good. Here's a $1,000 loan. Well, we call this a bond. Companies issue bonds like this all the time, even today, and the government does it too. Nowadays, when the media talks about the national debt, they're oftentimes referring to the amount of bonds that the Treasury has sold to the public just like this. So this is what the federal government did to finance the War of 1812. They sold tons of bonds, but they didn't sell them to just anyone. The government sought private banks to print currency wholesale, and then to buy federal debt with it, giving Congress the cash it needed for the war effort. This way, the government didn't have to field the politically unpalatable notion of printing money themselves in the years after shutting down the first bank of the U.S., partially because the bank did just that. I mean, it held a monopoly on money printing. And the private banks were happy to play along in this funding scheme, since they took on practically no risk in buying the government debt. 
After all, if the government defaulted or something, it's not like it really cost the banks anything to buy the debt in the first place, since all that debt was purchased with newly printed notes. So private banks printed money with reckless abandon. Previously, the First Bank of the U.S. had acted to keep private banks in check by sending representatives to the private banks to redeem large quantities of notes for specie. This ensured the private banks actually had the specie in their vaults against which they were printing the notes. But now, without the First Bank of the U.S. present to poop on the party, the number of private banks in the U.S. increased from 117 to 212 between 1811 and 1815 with most of these banks emerging to take advantage of the Fed's demand for currency. But to complicate matters, each of those 212 banks printed different currencies. Talk about a headache for the federal government trying to track down all of these notes, where they were coming from, whether the issuing bank was solvent or even still in existence. But the Feds were desperate for cash, and they eagerly accepted any notes the banks printed in exchange for government bonds. Alexander Hamilton's vision for a powerful central bank created a singular institution which printed money of a consistent value, which enabled central bankers to keep tabs on the economy and the quantity of money in circulation. However, in a move of remarkably poor foresight, Republicans in Congress managed to defeat the renewal of the First Bank of the U.S.'s charter by a single vote in 1811, one year before the war broke out and the government's need for credit skyrocketed. In the days of the First Bank of the United States, the federal government could sell their debt to the central bank in exchange for a single currency. But the failure to recharter Hamilton's bank meant that in 1812, the Treasury had to turn to the open market to sell their bonds. Private banks had a field day. No, they had a field year, and multiple years at that. They could print notes for virtually no cost and buy an interest-yielding investment from the government, which paid them in regular installments. As a quid pro quo for the bank's cooperation, the federal government suspended the requirement that banks deliver specie whenever noteholders demand it. I mean, imagine for a second what this does to the banking sector. Under normal circumstances, banks want to print dollar bills, but they can't because they're tied to this leash called the specie reserve ratio. The specie reserve ratio, you might remember from previous episodes, was the amount of dollar bills that the bank had printed compared to the amount of gold and silver in the bank's faults. Basically, if a bank wanted to be seen as credible and reliable, then they had to have a decent amount of gold and silver in the vaults to back up the notes that they had printed. This meant that they couldn't just print tons of currency unless they somehow could get their hands on tons of gold and silver. All of this helped to keep banks solvent and their notes of a reasonably consistent value. But then the federal government, who just needed cash, cut the leash of a specie reserve ratio, and basically just said to the banks, go ahead, print as much as you want. From now on until some future date, people aren't allowed to demand gold and silver from you, so don't worry about that annoying specie reserve ratio. Just print to your heart's content. But if you take a step back for a second, doesn't that kind of policy just sound mortally irresponsible? Anyway, by making it illegal for noteholders to demand gold and silver for their notes, the government created a fiat currency and unchained the printing presses to begin pumping out notes wholesale. Welcome to the inflationary boom part of an economic cycle. And spoiler alert, the deflationary bust part of that cycle will happen in a minute. But not every bank was drunk on the booze flowing from the money presses. In fact, many banks of the New England region didn't buy any government debt and kept their specie reserve ratios fairly consistent throughout the war, meaning they didn't ramp up money printing. This was because New England, the region of the Federalists, was largely opposed to the war. 
For one, the Federalist idol Alexander Hamilton, though dead since 1804, was a staunch advocate of protecting trade with the British. This made sense since the key industries of the northern region were shipping, financing, and insuring merchants in the transportation of goods. War with the British meant that the flow of goods might be hindered, as it certainly was after the British enacted their blockades. Evidently, whatever harassment of American merchants from the British Navy in the lead-up to the war wasn't enough to make New Englanders want to upset the apple cart of international trade through a full-scale war. But folks outside of New England, the ones dealing with the natives on the frontiers, pressured the government to go to war, defeat the British, and abolish any hopes that the natives had through that powerful ally. It comes as no surprise, then, that many of the banks responsible for the money printing and the funding of the war were in the southern, mid-Atlantic, and western states. Notably missing from that list were the banks of New England. It was here that the government's devious plan for funding the War of 1812 fell on its face. Before the federal government suspended the requirement that banks redeem their notes for gold and silver, New England bankers had been bringing back the banknotes issued by the southern and western banks and demanding gold and silver in exchange. But the country banks, a term referring to the banks outside of New England, by the way, had pyramided their notes at a rate of nearly 20 to 1. This meant that for every $1 of specie that they held in reserve, the bank had printed nearly $20 worth of notes. At that rate, it didn't take long for a scrupulous New York banker to suck the entire reserve of specie out of a country bank's vault and force that institution into bankruptcy. And when that happens, any currency that the bankrupt bank had printed becomes suddenly worthless. But if those notes are worthless and the federal government had loaded up on them to pay for the war, then what were they supposed to do? Here's where the government stepped in and suspended noteholders' rights to demand specie. But this did little more than create a legion of inflationary zombie banks, who were ripe to collapse as soon as the whole suspend specie payments policy was removed. Once the government's cash needs were lessened after the war, and the policy was repealed, the banks were again on the hook to redeem their notes for specie. But they were so overextended at this point, and by that, I mean that so many banks had printed so many notes that there was no way the banks could possibly redeem all the notes for gold and silver when people finally came asking, which meant that the banks were forced into bankruptcy as soon as that happened. It's easy to imagine how the Panic of 1819 is around the corner. To understand how the banking system fell apart in 1819, I'd like to introduce you to a theme that's going to come around over and over again throughout this podcast. Here it is. When the going is good, banks will loosen their lending standards and loosen their specie reserve ratios because that means they can print more money and make more loans, which ultimately means that they can make more profits. The problem occurs when the going stops being good. In the context of the War of 1812, the going was good for the banks when the government suspended specie redemption requirements, letting them print as much as their hearts desired. But prudent banks, such as many of the banks up in New England, looked at that policy and said, well, that's nice, but let's not print too much because if or when that policy ever changes, we could be in real trouble if too many people came to redeem too many notes at once. However, the less responsible banks, such as those in the southern, mid-Atlantic, and western regions, saw a policy like that and said, Oh, well, that's great. Let's print as much as the government will take. We're all going to get rich. Of course, when the going stopped being good, as it did in 1817, when the government required that banks redeem specie again, the conservative New England banks were able to quickly suck the gold and silver out of the vaults of the overextended country banks, putting the southern and midwestern banks out of business, and centralizing the banking power into the New England region. 
The rampant money printing of the 1810s brought with it fierce inflation. Between the years of the war, which were 1812 to 1815, prices rose on average 35%. Economically speaking, the War of 1812 was a debacle. Taxes failed to raise much revenue, and tariffs, though doubled, failed because international trade came to a standstill due to the British blockades. Currencies had become wildly inflated, and the government had set a dangerous precedent of suspending specie payments, inviting moral hazard among bankers. By 1814, however, the credit situation of the federal government was so poor that even private banks stopped accepting debt or treasury notes. Without a willing buyer of the debt, or the cash needed to service the mounting interest payments, the federal government defaulted on its obligations by the end of 1814. The War of 1812 had bankrupted the U.S. government. So poor was the financial situation that by the end of the war, Secretary of State James Monroe paid from his personal fortune to fund Andrew Jackson's expedition to New Orleans. The federal government, too, turned to private citizens, namely the bankers David Parrish and Stephen Gerrard and the businessman John Jacob Astor for a $16 million loan to keep the government afloat. It wasn't long before the banking practices that prevailed during and after the War of 1812 caused a widespread financial meltdown. Fear of this meltdown began to coalesce enough that Congress chartered a central bank to help resolve the issue. In February of 1816, the Second Bank of the United States, which was now the nation's third attempt at a central bank, was established. I know, the naming is confusing. One goal of the Second Bank of the U.S. was to get private banks to resume specie redemption for their notes without completely disrupting the banking sector. The Bank of the U.S.'s plan to accomplish this was to lure private banks to resume specie payments in exchange for injections of federal bonds issued by the new central bank. This incentive was successful at getting some banks to resume specie payment, though it came at the cost of high inflation. Private banks gladly accepted the debt notes, but ultimately ended up pumping a lot of those debt notes back into circulation as a currency. By 1818, the central bank had issued a staggering $43 million in debt, and an estimated $10 million of that debt had found itself into circulation, overall worsening the inflation in the country. That $10 million, by the way, is in addition to whatever the private banks had continued to print. In total, since the central bank's founding in 1816 until 1818, the money supply had risen over 40%. What we're witnessing in the early 1800s is the definition of an inflationary boom and bust. The economy responded predictably to all the new money in circulation. Prices rose, real estate values increased, business investment and speculation increased, and gold and silver flowed into the United States from foreign countries in response to the growth of business and investments. So long as specie was flowing into the vaults of American banks from overseas, U.S. banks responded with increased paper note issuances. But then, in 1818, the national movement of specie turned from an inflow to an outflow. The Bank of England, noticing the massive quantities of gold and silver leaving its shores to be stored in American vaults, instituted a restriction on the purchasing of American exports. Furthermore, the Bank of England began demanding specie for any American notes that it had accumulated, in an effort to bring gold and silver back to its own banks. This took the inflationary wind out of the sales of the Bank of the United States, which responded by cutting the amount of loans it issued and demanding repayment, in gold and silver no less, for the loans that it had already issued. The effect the contraction of credit had on the U.S. was a disaster. Credit was at this point in the boom cycle entirely fueling the increase in prices. 
When the central bank stopped lending, it caused the money supply to suddenly contract, prices plummeted, and confidence in the massively overextended banks was obliterated. The specie demands of the central bank, easily the largest financial institution in the U.S. at the time, caused widespread bankruptcy, especially in the financial sector. Due to a money supply contraction, fire selling, and a general panic, prices plummeted to lows not seen since the 1790s, almost 30 years prior. I mean, could you even imagine what it would look like, what it would take for the stock market or real estate to drop to prices from 30 years ago? This was the panic of 1819. Contemporary opinion reviled the Bank of the U.S. and blamed it as the cause of the panic and ensuing depression. Certainly, the bank's inept leadership and inflationary policies worsened the financial situation around the crisis. Tightening the money supply is about the worst mistake a central bank can make during a financial crisis, an error also made, by the way, by the Federal Reserve during the Great Depression. Add to that that the bank repossessed huge tracts of land from cash-strapped farmers when they failed to repay their debts. This had the undesirable effect of both driving real estate values down and driving a wedge between the financial elite and the working class. Alright, so that was a lot. Let's review this episode before we wrap it up. We picked up this episode around the turn of the century. Napoleon's war in Europe led to an increase in the demand for American goods. Napoleon didn't like that America was supplying the British and passed the Berlin Decree in 1806, which created a blockade of British ports and let French ships seize American ships. The British responded in kind with the Councils in Order in 1807, which forbade American trade with the French. The British played another nasty trick on the Americans through the practice of impressment, which forced conscription of captured American merchants into the British Navy. President Jefferson responded with the sweeping embargo on all international trade in hopes of forcing the British and the French to stop bullying American ships. The embargo was a disaster for the United States and essentially froze the economy, especially in the port cities. Jefferson repealed the act and replaced it with the Non-Intercourse Act in 1809, which forbade trade with just the French and just the British. The French soon capitulated, and Franco-American trade quickly resumed. The British, agitated by this, continued to accost American merchants. This, combined with British support of Native American rebellions on the western frontier, was enough for America to declare war against the British in 1812. The war was a financial fiasco. The federal government proved unable to raise nearly enough money through taxation or tariffs. Instead of eating their words and launching a money-printing campaign the way the Federalists had, the Republicans in power turned to a far cleverer scheme, issuing boatloads of debt to private banks which printed fresh notes to buy that debt. The banks were enticed by the investment that the debt offered, and the central bank was happy to have cash, albeit of dubious value, flowing into the treasury. In exchange for the bank's complicity, the federal government suspended the requirement that banks exchange specie for notes when demanded, essentially unleashing a massive revenue source for the banks, as well as for the federal government. The war concluded and inflation ran rampant in the U.S. The federal government, despite failing to renew the charter of the First Bank of the U.S. in 1811, decided in 1816 that it needed a central bank capable of helping private banks to resume specie redemption without completely wrecking the banking sector. In this, the Second Bank of the U.S. obviously failed. Also, the federal government hurt sorely for an official and singular source of credit which would have made funding the War of 1812 much easier. The Second Bank of the U.S. was launched and promptly began exercising incompetent monetary policy, issuing mountains of debt notes which themselves just ended up circulating as currency. 
This did little more than worsen the already dire inflation situation in the country. In 1819, the crisis came to a head once specie began to vanish from American vaults, as the English began exercising mercantilist policies. This slowed down bank lending and popped the price bubble. The U.S. Central Bank made matters worse by foreclosing on mortgages and demanding repayment of loans it had issued, causing smaller banks to do the same, contracting credit and liquidity on a national scale. Prices plummeted, the real estate market crashed, bankruptcy skyrocketed, and the public's perception of central banking was irreparably harmed. In the next episode, we'll explore the Second Bank of the U.S., the incompetent leadership of its early days, the bank war, and the presidential veto that spelled its demise. Thanks for listening to this episode of the History of U.S. Economics podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the website, useconpodcast.com. Also, follow the show on Twitter, at useconpodcast.com. 